So, Father, we're grateful that by your gospel you're making all things new through Jacob and Kara. We're so grateful that we have the opportunity to be a part of that through our giving to the gift of Christ, our praying, our going. Father, we are grateful that that's true there, but we are grateful also that that same gospel is at work here, that you're making all things new in and through us right here, and we pray you'll do that right now by your word as we come to it together in Jesus' name. When I was growing up, my parents owned, my grandparents owned an antique store. Well, it was more of an eclectic, unpredictable, ongoing yard sale. Actually, <laughs> it was an antique store. But my grandparents were kind of eccentric people. So they named their place Choctaw Ridge Trunks and Treasures. Now, the, the treasures part was a couple of outbuildings out behind their 1900s farmhouse, and it was stuffed to the rafters with stuff. But really, the trunks were kind of the, the star of the show, always, always heaven. My, 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 my memories of my grandparents' house are always full of trunks in various states of disrepair or restoration. They found them at, at auctions and estate sales, and as they began to repair them, people began to see the work they did. People started bringing them trunks to my grandparents, and they would bring these family heirlooms and back in a barn or back in some corner of the house, and then we'd get these great big, huge steamer trunks with a, with a top, curved top on them that had carried somebody's great, great, great grandparents' belongings from Europe to America when they first moved, or some, some valise that was there when the first person in their, in their family went away to college, or, or this trunk that my grandparents uh, repaired that... Um, we don't really know what the use was, but uh, but all these trunks had a story that was there. Now, my grandparents, what they did was they uh, they they researched and came to know kind of what these trunks would have looked like in their original state. And so we get them, and they'd be just covered with all kinds of paint and varnish and that sort of thing. So the first thing was to to strip them down and to get down to the original wood. Sometimes six or seven layers of, of paint and varnish. My my first job was with a steel brush and an acid wash in my grandparents' outbuilding, scrubbing these things down, getting them down to the original wood. And when we did that, then my grandmother would come along, and she would hand stain all of them again, restain them, get the outside all looking well. While she's doing that, my grandfather is working on all the other pieces of it, all the hinges and the hardware. He would often look on the inside, and there would be these trays on the inside, and, and a tray would often be, be cracked or broken or split in some way, and he would rebuild that tray and rebuild all the inner workings to kind of pull that, that back together some and begin to see kind of all that, how that began to fit together. And, and then they work on the, the outside and begin to pull that back together, paint it. And, and it would take time to pull all those pieces uh, together. And after years uh, of doing that, they had a had a workshop that's full of all the parts necessary to repair any trunk that came their way. They had boxes of hinges and strips of old belts that they could take and recut for the handles again, or or there were uh, tools that they could simply do to, to work some of the tin work that was inside some of the, the trunks. My, my grandfather, in his second career, kind of became a, a master trunker, whatever you call them. Uh, he was able to, to build those, even the ones that had the curved tops, he could rebuild those and put those things back together. And today, together, my grandparents found a way to completely remove all evidence of the destruction caused by, by time or neglect or flood or fire or whatever had caused it. And no matter the condition, they could promise that rusty old trunk could be restored back the way it was originally designed to look. It was fun to watch how people responded 
to that. Well, you and I live in a world in which, which everything eventually wears out over time. Sometimes it's by use. I'm on my second uh, Volvo now, both in excess of 300,000 miles. And sooner or later, they, they wear out even Volvos. They wear out after time. Or exposure to elements. Leave out a, a tool or something and it damages and it gets all rusted and those kind of things. Just neglect. Have you seen those, those uh, uh, documentaries where they, they tell you what it would happen in any kind of human settlement when you take out human care and maintenance. It's amazing how quickly walls fall in and plumbing falls in and bridges fall apart when nobody's taking care of them or just time. We know that in our physical bodies we feel that there's this relentless decline at work in the world. It's amazing how much time and money and energy is spent on replacement or restoration of those things. But it's not just in physical things that we see that or sense that. Look at something like a government or, or a business and, or any kind of institution. And they kind of operate, the life cycle of those businesses or those institutions operates kind of an inverted bell curve. And so they begin, there's a lot of great energy and they begin to move upward and they, there's a lot of energy there beginning and starting out and it gets to a point where there's great strength and it sustains for a while and then there comes a point where you keep doing the same thing where it plateaus and it kind of holds on and then begins to tip over the edge and kind of falls off until it moves down toward energy where it falls apart. And so a lot of energy is spent by bits and others analyzing to make sure how do we keep this on the front side of the curve, keep it up here, not where it won't fall off the edge. And so we, we reinvest and we do new leadership and we have uh, cash infusions and, and and all kinds of things we look at to make sure we're scrambling all the time. But that scrambling we deal with, and to keep things going in a positive, growing direction, always up and to the right, is not just around us, it's in us. Everybody here has something, some area of your personal life, some area of the world, that you, you long to be different. Maybe it's some relationship, something in your family, some issue that you've been dealing with, your finances, some, some failure or dream that has, has yet to come about. And maybe in the world, you look around, you watch the news, you see the, you see the shootings and the violence or, or the racial discord or the, the coarseness of language and topics that are talked about or, or the, the anger that seems to be just right on the surface on so many things. And, and you have a genuine concern about the future of our nation and where things are, are going. And you may have been dealing with those things, and maybe both of those levels for, for weeks or months or years. You know it. You feel it. It's kind of like the soundtrack of your life. It's just there all the time. And you pray. You pray to be less stressful or painful, less confusing. And you, what you have here, this longing. If we, wouldn't it be great if we could just hit reset and start this part of the story all over again? Just hit reset. I've been wishing that for the presidential election. Can we just hit reset? Start this thing all over again. And then take it back to where it was at the beginning. We love what the world has distorted to be restored back the way it was. Now, those longings that are in all of us point to the fact that all of our stories are being lived inside of God's much larger story. So we've talked about this, that God created all things good for His glory, for our good, and we operate that way, and we operate the way God designed it. It's good, but... But the human beings decided, oh no, we're going to write our own story and do our own thing, going to be our own king. And that brought brokenness and heartache and all the trouble and this one we talked about into our world. But God, in His goodness and mercy, 
brought Jesus Christ to be a rescuer, to take the penalty for our sin, to put things back together again. And he points to a day when it's coming when he will restore everything. So, so what we can know is that in the big story of the universe, from God's perspective, what's next is this restoration. It's what's coming next to put all things back the way they were originally intended to be. Now, this morning we're beginning a new series as we're looking at this idea of what's, ne- what's next, of, of mapping out God's promises. And we, we want to explore and look at, kind of lash our faith to these promises of God about the restoration. And we're going to look at the Word of God as, as it came to the, uh, by the Holy Spirit to the prophet Isaiah. And we're looking at uh, Isaiah 49 through Isaiah 56. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah 49. So if you have your copy of God's Word, why don't you go ahead and turn there to Isaiah 49. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. You can pull that out and follow along with us. We encourage you to do that. Isaiah is called by God, came to address God's people in a time of great uh, national transition, threat, and turmoil. They didn't really know what was going to come next for their nation. Sound familiar? Things were really tough. Encountered holy God in a really profound way and was commissioned to speak. Now, Isaiah is considered one of the major prophets, partially because of the length of his ministry, partially because of the length of his writings. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are, are tough. They're full of judgment, but they, there's, there are little hints every so often of a larger hope. Isaiah 40 begins the second half. It's still tough, but has more of a sense of sunrise to it. So you get to Isaiah 49, he begins to describe this promise God has to restore all things. We want to hear this from Isaiah 49. Ali's Roth is going to come and read for us. Would you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? We're going to hear Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6, and then verse 13. Let's hear the Lord's Word. Listen to me, O coastlands. And give your attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet sure, my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too late a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light, as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, and sing. For the Lord has comforted his people, and will have compassion on his afflicted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for being seated. Thank you, Elise. So God promises that all things are going to be restored back the way they were at the beginning. But here's the question I want us to wrestle with today. How do we consider a promise that big, that huge? How do we, how do we begin to wrap our hearts around that and trust it in a way that it begins to change the way we live our lives every single day? Well, so there's some truths about this promise. 
First of all, notice that God's promise of restoration was planned by His sovereign grace. So God created the world, said Adam and Eve, and Eden, a place of paradise, perfection, and joy. And Adam and Eve rebelled. And after Adam and Eve's rebellion, God pronounced sentence, and He banished them from the Garden of Eden. They're, they're tossed out of the perfect paradise that had been the only home they had ever known. Their relationship with God is, is broken. Uh, they, their relationship with each other is, is hurting. And now they've stepped out into a world that's now broken and distorted and, and full of pain and hardship. And to look back, there's an angel with a flaming sword guarding the way back in. They can't go back. They've only got to go out into that world. And every human being since, every one of us, have wandered through our lives in the wreckage of the aftermath of that, of that moment. But even before that moment, when God brought his justice against the human beings for their rebellion, he was merciful and he had a plan for a way back. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3 says that his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And we find this idea from the foundation of the world throughout the New Testament, that God had a plan before things even came. And how do you restore a universe? I mean, it's one thing to restore one tiny little piece of the universe weeks or even months to work on something, one little piece. How do you restore an entire universe? Well, it's a great mystery. It's carried throughout the scriptures, but God leaves hints. And the first one comes just within, within minutes after this rebellion happens. He's pronouncing judgment, and he turns to the serpent, to Satan, and here's what he says. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his, his heel. So, so he's looking ahead, and this is, this is the first announcement of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ in the Bible. God means to unwind all the confusion. God means to fix all the mess, put back together all the brokenness. And his plan is centered on, on a baby born of a woman who will crush the head of the servant. Now look back in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1. He says this, he says, You have called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. That, that points clearly ahead to Jesus, who is born of the Virgin Mary. So he called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. Why? Well, that down in verse 5. Lord, he formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back, to bring Israel back, to bring people back to a relation with him to be alive for the nations that my salvation may reach to all the ends of the earth. So, so the, the assignment for this one born of woman, who was going to be Jesus, is to be a servant of God who's the light in the darkness to point the way home. Now, when Jesus comes, he says, I have come to do my Father's will. And here's what he said. He said, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so before the foundation of the world, and again in Eden when he said it, God knew what he was going to do. He was going to rescue and restore all things through his son Jesus, the anointed Messiah, who would come and take on human flesh in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. God knew that was the plan. Now, look at Isaiah 49, verse 2. It says, He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. 
Now, the rescue and the restoration, that's God's target. That's what he's aiming for. But this one is going to come. This one born of woman, this, this Jesus, he says, he made me a polisher and put me away. There was a specific target for a specific time, but it's hidden away for a while. Why? Well, every arrow has to have a bow. Has to have something that will repair the arrow for its intended target. What was the bow? This is God's arrow. What was the bow? Chapter 49, verse 3. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Okay, so Israel will be God's servant to accomplish his restoring plan. Okay, anybody confused yet? Is, is it going to be servant of God, is it going to be Israel, or is it going to be Jesus Christ? And the answer to that question is, yes. It's going to be both. Here's the plan, the way this works. God's plan to rescue and restore through a person began with a people. Chosen people, people of Israel, Jewish people, and you can trace them back through their history and see God's hand as he put all this together. Now we're going to turn it and look at all these. Let me kind of tell you the story. Some time goes by from this moment in Eden. Time goes by. Long time. And it comes a time when God calls a childless, 75-year-old pagan moon worshiper named Abram to follow him. And he says to Abram, hey, Abram, go out and look up in the sky. See all those stars? I'm going to make you a great nation, and you're going to have more descendants than all the stars in the heavens. Make a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. I'm going to protect you. And in you, Abram, and your family, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram had no children. It was 25 years before he and his wife Sarah had their first baby. She's almost 100. It was a miracle of God. Isaac is born, the child of the promise. So one child, still the family is going, then Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. And one of those sons was Joseph, who was a bit of a brat as a child. And so his brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt. A famine comes, and Jacob's sons go to Egypt to, to where there was food. They find the same Joe they sold to slavery is now the vice president in charge of famine food distribution. And he provides for them, and here's what he says, you meant it to me for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. God had acted in order to preserve this family for his purposes. When Jacob blessed his sons right before he dies, he says, there's coming a ruler that's even greater than Joseph to you. Well, those 12 sons and their families, 70 people in all, moved to Egypt, and they settled in a solitary and rather protected Place. And over the next period of time, those families turned into tribes, 12 tribes of Israel. And in over 400 years, 10 generations, they went from 70 people to somewhere between 2.5 and 3.5 million people. And that became a threat to Egypt, a great super world power. And so, um, so they, they were enslaved there until God sent a deliverer named Moses. Moses, the one who came in the name of the one we say about earlier, the one who is the great I am. He came and that God defeated Egypt with the plagues. He delivered the people of Israel out. They walked on dry ground through the Red Sea, provided manna uh, for them to eat and water from a rock to sustain them in the desert. And even then, there was a promise made. It's a greater deliverer than Moses is coming. 
under Joshua. They cross into the promised land. And then begins this pattern that you find throughout the rest of the Old Testament. There are these miraculous victories followed by massive stupidity by the people of God. And they go to idol worship and rebellion and have to be opposed by God. They're defeated by their enemies. Prophets are sent who warn them and pray and plead and they remind them of God's faithfulness and remind them that there's a Messiah, an anointed deliverer who is coming. And there's hundreds of times when they remind them of that. There were kings who led. Some were faithful like King David and some were faithless and they were idol worshipers. And so again, they would come and be they were defeated by enemies and the prophets would come and they would warn, they would pray and they would plead and they would say a greater, greater king than David is coming because he's this Messiah who's coming. And they would disobey and they were overrun and they were exiled out, but they were never exterminated because God always preserved a remnant of this people. He said in Isaiah, uh, the place that he said a remnant will return. The remnant of Jacob to the mighty God and the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. God was preserving this people. So God's purposes for his people continue over decades and centuries and millennia, and they're waiting for a Messiah. And with every year that passes, the bow is pulled a little tighter and a little tighter and a little tighter until finally Galatians tells us this is what happened. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. God sent forth his son. This is one night in Bethlehem. One night in Bethlehem when a squalling baby born boy is born of a virgin Mary in that place. When she is there and gives birth, then in that moment, the secret polished arrow of God was released into the world. And that arrow was sent right at the heart of sin and brokenness and disappointment and, bro- and the mess and all the wrong that's wrong in the world. It was sent right at the connection, the shackles of sin that hold people captive and that, that chafe us and make life so hard. It was sent right in a place where it released all the restoration that God had planned. Now, here's what I want you to see. Every detail of the rescue and restoration that God had planned before creation, communicated in Eden, was coming to pass through a servant people, Israel, and a suffering servant, Messiah, named Jesus. Listen, the restoration that is coming is not for grabs. It's not in question, because not one word of all God has promised has ever faltered. He said, I'm going to restore all things. I planned this all the way along. So it's planned by his sovereign grace. So that's interesting at all. But how can I really know that promise is real? I mean, generic promises are like generic Oreos, you know. They always leave you hungry for the real thing. You want those to be there. This brokenness of the world, this hardship that weighs on my heart, and I, I'm so tired, it's so difficult. How can I know? You need to know this. These promises are also assured by his sacrificial love. Listen to what he says in verse, beginning in verse 8 of Isaiah 49. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I'm going to treat you with grace, not by your performance, but it's by grace. I have answered you. I'm going to answer all your cries and all your longings of your heart. I will keep you and give you a covenant, make you a covenant to the people. He will covenant with you, make a promise to you. So I'll give you a place 
to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear, I'm going to release you. They will feed along all the ways, and all the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. I'll provide for you. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. I'll protect you. For you have pity on them, will lead them by springs of water, will guide them, will make all my mountains a road, and all my highways shall be raised up. He'll guide us all the way home. Now, here's what I want you to hear. This is an offer of salvation. This is an offer of rescue from God. And, and the Apostle Paul quotes this exact verse later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Here's what he says. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he, God says, in a favorable time I have listened to you, and they of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, in, in the big picture of God's story, we're still in the season of the rescue. This is where we are, where you can trust Jesus and his rescue to put you right with God. The restoration is coming, but here's what's important to understand. You don't get the restoration without having been rescued. You don't get the blessings of the restoration without having entered a relationship with God through Jesus. So I just want to say to you this morning, if you're here and you, you've never stepped across the line of faith, not to say, oh, I like God or I like Jesus, but to say, I, I repent of my sin and I trust Jesus Christ alone to put me right with God. Step across the line. It's not too late. It's your only hope. And, and so today may be your day of salvation. Today may be your day to trust Him, to repent and believe in Him. But you may be here and say, I, I, I believe Jesus, but, and I want to believe this is coming. Listen, this mess is so ingrained in me. My heart is so burdened when I go through every day. It's hard to imagine a world apart from these things. Maybe you're like what the people of Israel said there in verse 14, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Maybe, you, maybe you're there. The psalmist talked this way. God, to be honest, it feels like you've gone on vacation. And if I can't feel and see you right now, how can I believe in the restoration of a new world? It's so much easier to lean into other things to give me relief and hope and, and some sort of being loved. I need something. And he's so patient and kind with us. Listen to what he says, verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but God says, Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Catch this. The bloody, nail-scarred hands of our Messiah, Jesus, are not generic. For everyone who has repented of sin and trusted Christ alone, you need to look closely at those wounds. And what you will find is that in those wounds, your name is written there. He was crucified for your sins and my sins. He hung suspended between heaven and earth for excruciating six hours. He's bleeding out. He's suffocating. suffocating. He died there as a substitute, taking God's death penalty that was ours on himself. He lived and, and died and rose again so that you and I could be forgiven, so we could be reconciled to God. And that would be enough, right? That would be enough, but there's more. For Colossians says this, it says, In Him, in Jesus, 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What he's doing, this Messiah who came and lived and died and rose, is to bring peace, not as an absence of conflict, but to bring shalom, which puts all the broken pieces back together. He does what you and I couldn't do. He puts all things back together again by the blood of his cross. No, God has not forgotten his promise to restore. What was planned by the Father is guaranteed by his Son in his blood and by his love. So when you doubt, when you struggle, God, where are you? What's going on in the middle of this? You look back at the cross and you remind yourself, oh, his love never fails. And he promised he would restore all things. And ultimately, you need to know that this restoration is promised by God will be enjoyed by his redeemed people. This restoration is for a specific people. Jesus said in John 14, he said, I go and prepare a place for you. For you. Jesus rescued a people to enjoy his restored world. That's God's forever family. So you find, find in verses 19 to 22, he says, uh, they're saying, I, where do all these people come from? There's all kinds of people around. Where do they all come from around the throne? They are God's family, his adopted children who will enjoy heaven. Now, now use, there's a current TV show, it's a little odd, called The Good Place. And the idea behind the good place is that there, there are people who did more good than bad get to go to the good place and kind of enjoy an eternal vacation. But that's, that's a lie. That's not true. It's only those who have seen their sin, repented of sin, trusted Christ, who get unfettered access into his presence, unfettered access into the glories of God, for whom the angel will lower the flaming sword and allow us to come into God's presence. And there will be people from every every kind of background, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multinational, multilingual, People there from Bowling Green and Scottsville and Smith's Grove and Glasgow, Kentucky and Nashville and Destin and St. Louis and Denver and Seattle and Miami and New York City and San Diego and Fargo and Atlanta and people from East Asia and Southeast Asia and Southern Europe and Glasgow, Scotland and West Africa and South Africa and Nepal and Portugal and, and Burma and Thailand all delighting in Jesus because he's the show. He's the center of everything in heaven. He's the focus We'll enjoy a banquet with our Redeemer. I love, love the, one of the phrases in, in David Crowder's new album. He says this. Here's what's going to happen. He says, we have come out of the ruins and back to communion. That's what our promise is. We're coming out of the wreckage, out of the ruins of the earth, back to communion. What did Adam and Eve do? They walked with God in the cool of the day. They had intimacy with God. That's where we are headed. But beyond that, what will we enjoy? A specific place. I go and prepare a place for you, a place for you, the promised land, the new heaven, the new earth. And we already reminded ourselves earlier in Revelation what's, what's not there. Nothing bad, right? No more tears or sickness or death or disappointment or pain. No, nothing ugly, no betrayal or corruption or sin or anxiety or things that crush our hearts or, or chaos or violence, nothing false, no lies, no deception, no mask, no games. But what is there? What is there is all that is good and all that is beautiful and all that is true. And Isaiah focuses on justice 
He says there in the last part of verse 24 and 25, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken to pray of the power and be rescued. I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. In other words, on that day, all that is wrong will be made right. All that is upside down will be right side up. He's going to put everything back together, and you're going to know it. Look what he says in verse 23. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Verse 26, Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. You're going to know on that day. You're going to know that it was not in vain to have hope for restoration because it's going to come just like He promised. This is such good news. It's such good news. It's worth worth shouting a hallelujah because it changes the way we approach the mess. It changes the way we deal with the longings of our heart this very week that's coming up. It transforms everything. I heard the author, Anne Lamott, speak at WKU this past week, and, and she said at her church in San Francisco, they sing a song to remind of a way to live in the middle of the mess when your hearts are still broken, you're still disappointed, and you're still struggling and overwhelmed. We remind ourselves to trust the plan of our sovereign Father and the love of the Son who sacrificed and the promises He's given. And the song has a chorus, a song that says, when all those kind of things happen, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to say, hallelujah anyway. Hallelujah anyway. It's how we're going to live our lives. I'm going to praise God, trust Him anyway. Or do you use another phrase in the Bible? Maranatha. What this means, oh, come, Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, and take us home. So even while you live, even while you walk through the mess of this week, even while you serve and try to persevere and stay true to God, and it's tough and it's hard, listen, you can go ahead now and pack up your heart and get ready to go home because restoration is coming. Because your Heavenly Father promised, and your Heavenly Father never lies. Let's stay and pray together. So, Lord, now you see our hearts as we've heard the reality of your truth, of your promise. There's some of us here, Lord, who struggle with this because we know we have no relationship with you, and having no relationship with you, we have no hope. So maybe the day is today. Day of salvation. Somebody here, they would come and kneel here and just say, Oh, Jesus, I need you. Take away my sin and put me back right with my Creator and my King. We invite you to come, but that's your cry. Lord, there's others of us here, we know you. We've known you for a long time, but we just let the headlines and the mess and the stuff on social media and Facebook and Twitter and at workplace, in our neighborhood, and the conversations over coffee have become more real to us than your promise. And some of us today, Lord, need to come and just kneel and say, Jesus, help your promise become more real than anything else I hear and change me. So in these moments, Lord, you help us to respond, reminding ourselves again of how big your grace really is and where it leads us. Help us trust that more than anything. In Jesus' name we pray.